Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Our sermon this morning, as you just heard, comes from Psalm 32. And we're going to learn what God wants to teach us about confession of sin. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit, and may the Lord do what He wants to do in our hearts this morning. This sermon is a part of a series that we're in called Graces of Reconciliation. Last week, Jim preached from Ephesians 2, which we just read a moment ago. What a powerful passage. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Grace has met us. But grace does not stop when we were saved. We're prepared for good works. Because we are recipients of God's grace vertically to us, we can share his grace horizontally. Last week, Jim called this right angle grace. Our relationships can easily go down the drain. We are sinners. One person can sin, the other person sins because the other person sinned and it keeps going and going and going. The way that that cycle stops is when someone, instead of paying back sin, decides to throw back grace. They confess their sin. They give forgiveness. That's what breaks the cycle. And so the next four sermons are, today is confession of sin. In two weeks, Jake is going to preach about forgiving sin, and then there will be sermons about being teachable and exhorting one another. We want to, together as a congregation, fulfill what Colossians 4, 6 says. Let your speech be always seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. Now, confession, as we said, it runs two ways. It runs, we confess to God and he gives us grace, and we can confess sin to one another. And this psalm, Psalm 32, starts by talking about the way that we confess sin to God. We're going to look at that, and then we'll talk about how we confess sin to one another. Psalm 32 is one of the, what people throughout the ages have called the penitential psalms, psalms where you're apologizing, you're confessing sin to God. This psalm is, was Augustine's favorite psalm. He had it written on the wall next to his bed as he was dying. It was there because he wanted to remember how low he was and how God had reached down and had forgiven him. Now, be honest, are you excited about this sermon this morning? 
Confessing sin can often strike fear in our hearts. But this morning, we're going to consider the incredible offer that God gives us when we confess our sin. Forgiveness in Christ changes everything. To clarify this morning, when I talk about confessing your sin to the Lord and receiving forgiveness, I'm not talking about re-justification. Those who are saved by grace through faith are made alive with Christ. You don't get regenerated again. It happens once. But after you get regenerated, have you ever sinned? Yes. I keep sinning, you keep on sinning, and by God's grace, we're going to sin less, and we're going to be conformed more to the image of Jesus. But because we keep on sinning until the Lord makes us perfect in his presence, we need to confess our sin to the Lord and to others. We need to experience, once again, confessing sin to the Lord, experiencing his favor and grace. Let's look at this chapter together. Verses 1 and 2 say, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, blessed is one of those kind of spiritual words. I don't normally say that someone is blessed or blessed. Um, sometimes we say that in different contexts. But blessed means happy. Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. It also means something even deeper than that. One Bible dictionary said, says, blessed means the kind of happiness that comes from receiving divine favor. Do you want to have a blessed life? Do you want to have a happy life? Well, this chapter gives a great roadmap of how to do it. The happiest Christians are the ones who confess their sin. But the sad reality is that we don't like confessing our sin. We try to avoid confession. It's quite amazing if you just take a few minutes and try to consider all the different ways that we try to get out of confession. Here's a top 10 list for you. Number 10, sorry if you were offended. You just bounce it back to the other person. It must be their fault they were offended. Number nine, Mistakes were made. This is a great one if you're in charge of a group of people. You just remove yourself as the subject, put a passive verb, and you're all set. Number eight, euphemism. Don't use the word sin. Use something that's softer. It was a slip-up. It was a mistake. It was a lapse of judgment. Number seven, be sorry only for the consequences. Just be sorry that you got caught. Don't be sorry morally for anything that you did wrong. I'm just sorry that I have to deal with the punishment. Number six, weigh the scales. You got good works and bad works. Works righteousness. I can't believe that you're making such a big deal out of this after all that I've done for you. How could you do that? Number five, the fool. Proverbs 29 says, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool rages and laughs. There's no quiet. You just laugh it off. Just be angry. Number four, deflection. Make sin seem small by identifying sins in others that are much worse than our own. Well, compared to how she hurt me, 
How could I confess to that person? They sinned against me ten times what I've done to them. It's a little bit like the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, the unjust, the adulterers, this tax collector. But the tax collector was the one that pleased God. He wouldn't even look up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's another one. No heart. Just say the words. Somebody needs an apology. I don't really mean it, but I'm just going to say I'm sorry. We're going to deal with it. We can move on, okay? Number two, deception. You could lie about it. I'm not suggesting you lie about it. I'm just saying you could lie about it. I didn't do it. And number one, blame. Why is this number one? Think about the beginning of the Bible. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. A child might say, my sister made me do it. A grown-up might blame his company culture. Or we blame the devil. The temptation was just too much. That's a lot, isn't it? Wow. Compare this to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. These two verses give us three words that are overlapping in meaning that describe sin. This is what the Psalms often do. You say something one way, then you say the same thing with other words. A transgression, the word translated transgression here is literally a going away or a departure. It's a rebellion against God. The word sin has a root in coming up short or falling short. So it uses the same root. If you shoot an arrow and you don't make it all the way to the target, it falls short. That's what we do with God's law. We don't make it all the way to God's law. We fall short. It uses the word iniquity, which could mean corrupt or twisted or crooked. Sin affects us. We change. You might say that the, you got three words. The first is in relation to God. The second's in relation to his law. We fall short. The third is how sin affects ourselves. These verses also give us three great words for God's mercy. We're forgiven. You see that? Our transgression is forgiven. We have a burden lifted off of our shoulders. Our sin is covered. It's concealed. It's hidden out of sight. If you have friends over at your house, do you ever cover anything? I'm pretty good at that. Oh, they're coming over. You see that junk on the floor? Throw it underneath the couch. Don't let them see it. Throw it in the closet. We conceal. We cover. Well, God does that with our sin, except it never comes back out of the closet. It's just gone. It says he counts no iniquity. This is legal or bookkeeping, counting. God is not counting your sins. It's as if he has a ledger. It's got your sins in it, and he erases them. Or in today's language, you have a database, and that database is erased. And all the backups are erased, and your sin's gone. There's no record of it. These descriptions here of sin and forgiveness are so good that they're the verses in Romans 4 when Paul makes the point, 
that Abraham was justified by faith. This is what God did for Abraham, and this is what God does for all of Abraham's descendants. Rachel and I are foster parents, and recently we had a one-year-old with us, and one-year-olds, she, like many one-year-olds, love to play peekaboo. So you, you do this, and then you teach the child to do this. Stuff disappears when something's in the way, doesn't it? Well, pretty quickly, the child catches on, realizes what's happening. But that's the way that we often deal with sin with God. Oh, Lord, it's not there. Of course it's there. Of course there's sin behind those hands. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Then David goes on in verse 3 to describe the experience of confessing sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's describing physical effects. Of sin. Now, this could be metaphorical. This is the Psalms. You use very vivid language. But it could also be literal because we're whole beings. Those with PTSD or significant anxiety or deep grief, you know the way that your heart affects your body. There's been scientific research that shows when you keep secrets or you have guilt, you have problems with sleep, with stomach digestion, with muscle tension, with cortisol levels. Those things just affect our bodies. The way that David describes it here is the heat of summer. We've experienced that lately, haven't we? Go outside, you just feel like you're going to burn up. You don't want to go outside and work in the yard because you know your strength is going to be sapped pretty quickly. That's what David feels like with the guilt of his sin. Have you ever felt this way? You feel like you're groaning inside? You know that you need to confess sin, but I, I, I just can't. It doesn't go away. In this passage, it says that God's hand, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. God's hand was heavy on David for his sin. In other words, because David sinned, God caused him to feel really terrible. There's not always a direct connection between sin and sickness. Because there's often way more reasons that we're sick that don't have anything to do with sin. Job and Joseph and Jesus are all examples of those who suffered, not for sin, but for righteousness. But in this passage, David draws that connection. Is there any significant sin in your life that's unconfessed, that's wreaking havoc on your heart, on your body, on your mind? What would it be like to be free from that. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalms are songs, and so there's repetition in them. And here we have the same nouns as we did earlier. There's sin, there's iniquity, there's transgressions. But now, instead of seeing what God does 
about those things, we see a little earlier what David needed to do with them. He says, I acknowledged, I did not cover, said, I will confess. He brings it out in the open. He's not trying to hide it from God. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't lie about what he's doing. Did you catch how the word covered is used here? In the first verse, it says that God covers our sin. In this verse, it says, David says, I did not cover my sin. It's God's job to cover sin with grace. It's our job to not cover it in his sight. You have two choices. You can either do it this way or do it the other way. You can cover up your sin, and then God will uncover it and make you pretty uncomfortable. Or you can uncover your sin, and God will cover it with grace. You can cover up your sin, and God will uncover it and make you deal with it. Or you can uncover it, and he'll cover it with grace. And the Lord forgave the iniquity of his sin. It's so immediate. It's almost matter of fact, and he forgave me. It's almost as if he doesn't even get the words out of his mouth and the Lord forgives him. See that verb? I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He doesn't even say, I confessed. He doesn't say, I groveled. He doesn't say, I did this 10 times over. He said, I said, I'm about to confess my transgressions to the Lord, and the Lord forgave me. It was so fast. It's like the prodigal son who comes back and he says two sentences of confession and the Lord and the father already is saying, bring out the fattened calf, let's celebrate. How different this is. David spent day and night groveling. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him and when he finally came to the Lord, the Lord forgave him. Jesus' blood was shed for him. Don't make it harder than it needs to be. What have you done wrong? Have you stolen? Have you gossiped about your neighbor? Confess it. God will forgive you. The psalm then tells us to act with urgency and responsiveness. Therefore, see, David is turning from his own experience, and now he's exhorting others. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters... They shall not reach him. Why does he do this? At a time when you may be found. It's because he knows that each one of us don't want to deal with it. I'll do that later. He says, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. When the spirit is working in your heart, don't ignore him. Is there a time when God's mercy might not be able to be found? Steadfast love endures forever, doesn't it? But there's a day coming, a judgment day, when it's no longer the time of mercy, but it's the time of judgment. When Christ returns, there's no turning back. When you die, there's no turning back. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know if your heart is going to get harder later on in life. While the Lord is working in your heart, 
respond to the Lord at a time when he may be found. The people in Noah's day thought they had an ordinary day, and the next day the heavens let loose and there was the rush of great waters. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He not only says we shouldn't wait, he also says we should be responsive. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. If you have a horse and you want that horse to go a certain way, you have bit and bridle on it. You have spurs on your feet. You yell, you have a whip, whatever you need to do, you get that animal to go the way that you want it to go. Kids, how many of you have pets? A few hands, yeah? How many of you have a dog? Yeah, a few of you, yeah, okay. Now, when you first get a puppy, does that puppy know how to listen and obey to what you want it to do? Well, some may, but... I'm seeing a few nods. Most puppies don't know. They know, they're pretty good at making messes. They chew things, they pee on things, they bark at things, they run everywhere. Now suppose you say to that new puppy, okay, puppy, we're gonna go on a walk around the block. And uh, I want you to learn just some freedom and learn how to obey. So I'm not gonna put you on a leash. We're just gonna walk around the block and and I want you just wherever I say, we're going to go together. How long would that last? That would not work very good. You need that puppy on a leash because that puppy doesn't know, doesn't understand your English, doesn't understand what you're thinking. They just know that that thing they want to bark at is really exciting. Well, that's what God is saying we should not be like. Don't be like an animal that you have to put bit and bridle on. Don't be like the animal you have to put on a leash. God wants to be able to walk around the block with somebody who listens to him, who talks to him, who follows his advice. God is saying, you can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Either way, we're going to go around the block, but don't make me put bit and bridle on you. Now, let's consider how our confession to God and Confession to others related. Well, sin against others is sin against God, isn't it? And so any confession of sin to others for things that you've done wrong to them must be done in relation to God. If you sin against somebody who bears God's image, then you're sinning against the one whose image they bear. Psalm 51 is a just a crazy example of this. In Psalm 51, that's the psalm that David wrote after he sinned with Bathsheba, after he had Uriah killed. There's a verse in there that says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's crazy. He had somebody murdered. He committed adultery. Against you, you only have I sinned. Well, he can say that because in the grand scheme of things, he knows he's responsible to the Lord. These sins against other people were sins against him. And yes, 
he needs to deal with that. And that was wrong. But it's wrong ultimately because it's wrong against the Lord. Conversely, confession to God, but without confession to others, also displeases God. God wants the two together. That's why in the Lord's Prayer it says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who have trespassed against us. God wants us to connect the vertical with the horizontal. Matthew 5 is about confession in this sense. If you're offering your gift at the altar, you're there at the altar with an animal, and you there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, maybe to your village 80 miles away. First be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. It's our vertical relationship with God that actually gives us the power to confess to others. Our learning how to confess sin to God gives us the power and the pattern and the strength to confess to others. The definition of a Christian, to be a Christian, is someone who's confessed their sin, who's asked for forgiveness, who's put their hope in Jesus alone and received grace. And throughout the life of the Christian, the Christian continues to confess sin, to ask him for forgiveness to put trust in Christ alone and not being able to do it on our own and receiving grace. Well, that affects the way that we relate to other people. Because we're used to saying that to God, we can say to others, I was wrong. We can say, I'm sorry. I know that I've sinned against God and yet he's been gracious and merciful to me. My sin can be dealt with. This makes it so much easier for us to be able to say, I was wrong. A friend that you have sinned against wants a gift from you. They don't want you to buy them a present. They don't want flattery. They don't want you to smooth things over. If it's your spouse, they don't just want a date night or a vacation. Instead, they want the gift of confession. If you could just simply say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Can we restore our relationship? Now that is a gift. How do you actually confess sin to someone? Well, I already gave you 10 ways not to do it. <laughs> One way, you want to avoid excuses. Generally, the word if is not helpful. I'm sorry if I. Well, did you actually or did you not? No, I'm sorry that I did this. I'm sorry for doing this. Avoid generalizations. And it follows a very simple pattern. Some of you have been doing this for decades. Others are young in age or young in faith and may not actually know how to do this. Number one, say what you did wrong. Clearly, without excuses. Number two, ask the other person to forgive you. Number three, the other person forgives. Now, the other person may not be able to forgive immediately. If, you're, if you've sinned against them for a long time, it may take more conversation. It may, may take time for someone to be able to feel that they can say that they forgive you. It's not your job to say, 
Jesus said, you need to forgive me, so forgive me right now. Doesn't help. If you're the one forgiving, you can say something to the effect where you draw the contrast with how much you've been forgiven. The Lord has forgiven me of so much. How could I not forgive you? Draw the right angle. Sometimes this can even be reciprocal. Maybe you've been in a conflict with someone and you taking the first step might actually make it easier for the other person to let down their guard and confess their sin. The book, The Peacemaker, which is a really helpful book about relationships by Ken Sandy. In there, he says, even if you've only created 2% of the problem, you can own 100% of the 2%. What if confessing could have huge consequences? The basic pattern of confession is simple, but life is complex, isn't it? Some sins have bigger repercussions. Maybe you're an adult, and the thing that's in your mind right now is a long, complex relationship. Or maybe you need to confess a breach of trust, something with sums of money, or something in marriage or legal matters. Maybe you're a teen, and you need to confess a secret sin that's been gnawing away at you. If your confession is going to tear open a massive wound or have life-altering consequences, it's not wrong to reach out to a pastor or mature Christian friend or a counselor first. This conversation with that person, though, should be about how and when you confess and not if. You may be concerned about your reputation. It never feels good to show your bad stuff to somebody else. But nobody can criticize you more than the cross already has. God has already said how terrible your sin is. Your sin is so bad that God had to send his son from heaven to earth to die to deal with your sin. That's how bad your sin is. But God, who's already said terrible things about you, is also the one who loves you and has said the most glorious things about you as his son or daughter who's going to enjoy his grace forever. What if I'm the one that's sinned against? Great question. In two weeks, Jake will have all the answers. <laughs> See if you contributed anything to the situation. Jesus talked about the plank and the speck. Take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye and be ready to forgive. Lean into forgiveness. What about misunderstandings, hurts, and conflict? I'm referring here to things that are not necessarily sin, but they're clearly messy. I have in mind here the strain with your coworker, the honest disagreement in your marriage, the hurt from a careless word that someone unintentionally said, the broken relationship that isn't quite right. There might be sin in there. There might not be sin in there. There might be visible sin. There might not be visible sin. There might be heart sin. Either way, it threatens peace and unity and joy. There's lots of passages in the New Testament that talk about this. Colossians 3 is one of them. 
Starting at verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's not said in this passage, but the underlying assumption here is that we are going to hurt and offend each other. Otherwise, why would you need so much kindness and patience and the ability to bear with one another? God wants us to be in touch with how one another are feeling and doing, not perfectly. We don't know each other's hearts perfectly. We have different levels of relationships with different people, but we should be compassionate. We should bear with one another and forgive one another and put on love. There isn't any explicit command in the Bible that says, if it's not sin, but you've hurt someone, you need to apologize. And if you're hurt by someone, you shouldn't assume that the other person necessarily did it intentionally or that they sinned. A sermon like this can't deal with every situation, so I have to speak in generalities. But what the Bible does do is give us hard guidelines about relational harmony. There's so many passages about this. If your actions had a negative effect on someone, you might not be able to say, please forgive me for my sin. But you could still say, I'm sorry I overlooked this. I'm sorry my action hurt you. Please help me learn how I can love you better. What? Apologize when you haven't done something wrong? Well, there's passages like Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That phrase is so helpful. So far as it depends on you. You're not responsible for what other people do. You're not responsible for how people respond in every situation. You're not responsible for the background that someone brings to a situation. But you are responsible to consider others in your actions. It's not virtuous to be a jerk. It's not virtuous to grate on people or simply say, it's their problem. Why? Because that's the opposite of Colossians 3. Compassion, kindness, bearing with one another, pursuing peace. Sometimes a conversation can just head off misunderstandings. It's easy to get bitter because of a misunderstanding. That bitterness grows into anger. That anger grows into sin. Make sure other people know that you love them. The reason for saying something like this is Jesus' words where he summarizes the Old Testament. Matthew 7 says this, So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus wants us to care for other people like we care about ourselves. I can't tell you what to do in every situation, but God does call us to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. 
If you were the person on the other side of the conversation, what would bring truth and peace and wholeness that might give you the right answer? God's goal for us is not just the absence of sin, but the presence of peace and unity. Finally, how does God use confession to build his church? Well, confession restores broken relationships, doesn't it? Confessing sin and asking for forgiveness can repair things. Now, the first, we've got six challenges that we're working on together as a congregation that we're asking the Lord for help with. The first challenge is give grace. It's applying the language of grace to our past, to our present, to our future. The second of those challenges is to preserve unity. Confessing our sin to one another will help us with both of those. Another area that's in our top six things is outreach and evangelism. What's the connection there? Well, if we're not regularly confessing our sin, it can be easy for us to trust our own righteousness, to look down on others who aren't as far as we think we are. But if we're regularly confessing our sin, it makes it so much easier to stand next to someone and say, I need Jesus. Do you need Jesus too? To build relationships, we have to be open and transparent with people. I don't trust people who have a wall up. Don't sin on purpose, but also don't be afraid to let yourself be known. Wouldn't it be glorious if you made some friends? Develop relationships with people, you may already have these, who see you warts and all. And then over time they say, why do you have so much hope? They see Jesus in you. Confession can also help us have closer communion with God and others. Here I'm thinking of a willingness to confess sin, even if it's not directly against the person that you're confessing it to. Confessing sins that you're struggling with, the ability to be real and honest about your challenges with other Christians. Does first of Anne feel superficial to you? You might say yes, you might say no. We're all different. We all have different experiences. But I'd venture to say that your answer depends in part on how well you feel other people know you and how well you feel known. For most of us, the relationships that we have throughout our life that are the deepest are with people that we've spent a lot of time with, and people who know us well, warts and all. They know a lot about you. You know a lot about them. You've seen each other high and low, and yet you still love each other. One author described the feeling, and I'm not making the statement that we're a superficial church, I'm just saying it's a helpful question for us to ask. One author described the feeling of a superficial church this way. We feel that everyone has advanced so far into holiness that we're isolated and alone in our sin. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road of heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lives and hypocrisy. I know that for myself, some of the times in my life when I've made good strides against specific sins, when I've grown in holiness and joy, have been when I've been in a group 
with other people, with other men, where we confessed sins and struggles to one another, where we prayed for one another, supported one another. Darkness hates the light, and getting my sins into the light helped me put more of them to death. I'm not saying that all of us need to air all our dirty laundry to everyone. That wouldn't help anyone. But I am saying that we need to talk and live in such a way that highlights that we're recipients of grace who keep needing grace. And so my question is, do you have people that you're real with? Do others know you well enough to be able to pray for you, to help you apply scripture to your life? And for many of you, the answer is yes. But maybe the answer for you is no. If so, talk with your youth leader or your Sunday school leader or some friends and say, I feel like my spiritual life would be healthier if I had a small group of friends that I could let them know my junk that wouldn't judge me and would help me. Maybe it looks like being more real with your whole class or a subgroup of your class or friends from men's or women's ministry. Maybe it's a discipleship relationship. Maybe it's a Christian relative. Many of us are already doing this, but we need to grow deeper. We want to ask the Lord to help us with next steps to walk in the light with others. The psalm concludes, verses 10 and 11 say, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. A sermon on confession needs to end with rejoicing because we're forgiven. The Lord loves to work in the hearts of those who repent. People who study revivals throughout history, revivals more often than not start when people are repenting. This is the way your Christian life started. This is the way it continues. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of Christians should be repentance. So we rejoice that our sins are covered. We rejoice that the Lord will meet us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to listen to a song that confesses sin. And as I pray, and as we listen to this song, take time to pray to the Lord. Lord, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we are the blessed ones whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Thank you that you don't count our iniquity. Lord, help us not to be those who are silent about our sin and feel the consequences. Instead, Lord, we confess our sins to you and you cover our sin. You're our hiding place. Thank you that you teach us and lead us. Help us not to be like horses or mules or dogs, but instead be those who are responsive to you. Lord, make us glad in you. Thank you that you make the upright, make us upright in heart through the righteousness of Jesus. And we shout for joy. Amen.